Volume 2, Chapter 7 of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Madeira. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume 2, Chapter 7. I did proceed to Windsor, but not with the intention of remaining there. I went but to obtain the consent of Idris, and then to return and take my station beside my unequalled friend, to share his labours and save him, if so it must be, at the expense of my life. Yet I dreaded to witness the anguish which my resolve might excite in Idris. I had vowed to my own heart never to shadow her countenance even when transient grief and should I prove requiant at the hour of greatest need? I had begun my journey with anxious haste. Now I desired to draw it out through the course of days and months. I longed to avoid the necessity of action. I strove to escape from thought vainly. Futurity, like a dark image in a phantasmagoria, came nearer and more near, till it clasped the whole earth in its shadow. A slight circumstance induced me to alter my usual route, and to return home by Egham and Bishopgate. I alighted at Perdita's ancient abode, her cottage, and, sending forward the carriage, determined to walk across the park to the castle. This spot, dedicated to sweetest recollections, the deserted house and neglected garden were well adapted to nurse my melancholy. In our happiest days, Perdita had adorned her cottage with every aid art might bring, to that which nature had selected to favour. In the same spirit of exaggeration she had, on the event of her separation from Raymond, caused it to be entirely neglected. It was now in ruin. The deer had claimed the broken palings, and reposed among the flowers. Grass grew on the threshold, and the swinging lattice creaking to the wind gave signal of utter desertion. The sky was blue above, and the air impregnated with fragrance by the rare flowers that grew among the weeds. The trees moved overhead, awakening nature's favorite melody. But the melancholy appearance of the choked paths and weed-grown flower-beds dimmed even this gay summer scene. The time when in proud and happy security we assembled at this cottage was gone. Soon the present hours were joined those past, and shadows of future ones rose dark and menacing from the womb of time, their cradle and their bier. For the first time in my life I envied the sleep of the dead, and thought with pleasure of one's bed under the sod where grief and fear have no power. I passed through the gap of the broken paling. I felt, while I disdained, the choking tears. I rushed into the depths of the forest. O oh, death and change! Rulers of our life, where are ye that I may grapple with you? What was there in our tranquillity that excited your envy, in our happiness that ye should destroy it? We were happy, loving, and beloved. The horn of Amalthea contained no blessing unshowered upon us, but, alas, la fortuna, deidad barbara importuna, oi cadaver i ayer flor, no permanece jamás. 
As I wandered on thus ruminating, a number of country people passed me. They seemed full of careful thought, and a few words of their conversation that reached me induced me to approach and make further inquiries. A party of people flying from London, as was frequent in those days, had come up the Thames in a boat. No one at Windsor would afford them shelter, so, going a little further up, they remained all night in a deserted hut near Bolter's Lock. They pursued their way the following morning, leaving one of their company behind them sick of the plague. This circumstance once spread abroad. None dared approach within half a mile of the infected neighborhood, and the deserted wretch was left to fight with disease and death in solitude as he best might. I was urged by compassion to hasten to the hut for the purpose of ascertaining his situation and administering to his wants. As I advanced, I met knots of country people talking earnestly of this event. Distant as they were from the apprehended contagion, fear was impressed on every countenance. I passed by a group of these terrorists in a lane in the direct road to the hut. One of them stopped me and— conjecturing that I was ignorant of the circumstance, told me not to go on, for that an infected person lay but a short distance. "'I know it,' I replied, "'and I am going to see in what condition the poor fellow is.' A murmur of surprise and horror ran through the assembly. I continued, "'This poor wretch is deserted, dying, succorless. In these unhappy times God knows how soon any or all of us may be in like want. I am going to do as I would be done by.' "'But you'll never be able to return to the castle. "'Lady Eutrus, his children!' "'In confused speech were the words that struck my ear. "'Do you not know, my friends,' I said, "'that the Earl himself, now Lord Protector, "'visits daily not only those probably infected by this disease, "'but the hospitals and pest-houses, "'going near and even touching the sick? "'Yet he was never in better health. "'You labour under an entire mistake as to the nature of the plague.' "'But do not fear. I do not ask any of you to accompany me, nor to believe me, until I return safe and sound from my patient.' So I left them and hurried on. I soon arrived at the hut. The door was ajar. I entered, and one glance assured me that its former inhabitant was no more. He lay on a heap of straw, cold and stiff, while a pernicious effluvia filled the room, and various stains— and Mark served to shew the virulence of the disorder. I had never before beheld one killed by pestilence. While every mind was full of dismay at its effects, a craving for excitement had led us to pursue Defoe's account and the masterly delineations of the author of Arthur Mervyn. The pictures drawn in these books were so vivid that we seemed to have experienced the results depicted by them, but cold were the sensations excited by words burning though they were in describing the death and misery of thousands compared to what i felt in looking on the corpse of this unhappy stranger this indeed was the plague i raised his rigid limbs i marked the distortion of his face and the stony eyes lost to perception as i was thus occupied chill horror congealed my blood, making my flesh quiver and my hair to stand on end. Half insanely I spoke to the dead. So the plague killed you, I muttered. How came this? Was the coming painful? You look as if the enemy had tortured before he murdered you. 
and now I leapt up precipitately and escaped from the hut before nature could revoke her laws and inorganic words be breathed in answer from the lips of the departed. On returning through the lane I saw at a distance the same assemblage of persons which I had left. They hurried away as soon as they saw me. My agitated men added to their fear of coming near one who had entered within the verge of contagion. At a distance from facts one draws conclusions which appear infallible, which yet, when put to the test of reality, vanish like unreal dreams. I had ridiculed the fears of my countrymen when they related to others. Now that they came home to myself, I paused. The Rubicon, I felt, was past, and it behoved me well to reflect what I should do on this hither side of disease and danger. According to the vulgar superstition, my dress, my person, the air I breathed, bore in it mortal danger to myself and others. Should I return to the castle, to my wife and children, with this taint upon me? Not surely if I were infected, but I felt certain that I was not. A few hours would determine the question. I would spend these in the forest, in reflection on what was to come and what my future actions were to be. In the feeling communicated to me by the sight of one struck by the plague— I forgot the events that had excited me so strongly in London. New and more painful prospects by degrees were cleared of the mist which had hitherto veiled them. The question was no longer whether I should share Adrian's toils and danger, but in what manner I could in Windsor and the neighbourhood imitate the prudence and zeal which, under his government, produced order and plenty in London, and how now pestilence had spread more widely, I could secure the health of my own family. I spread the whole earth out as a map before me. On no one spot of its surface could I put my finger and say, Here is safety. In the south the disease, virulent and immedicable, had nearly annihilated the race of man. Storm and inundation, poisonous winds and blights filled the measure of suffering. In the north it was worse. The lesser population gradually declined, and famine and plague kept watch on the survivors, who, helpless and feeble, were ready to fall an easy prey into their hands. I contracted my view to England. The overgrown metropolis, the great heart of mighty Britain, was pulseless. Commerce had ceased. All resort for ambition or pleasure was cut off, the streets were grass-grown, the houses empty. The few— that from necessity remained, seemed already branded with the taint of inevitable pestilence. In the larger manufacturing towns the same tragedy was acted on a smaller yet more disastrous scale. There was no Adrian to superintend and direct, while whole flocks of the poor were struck and killed. Yet we were not all to die. No, truly, though thinned, the race of man would continue, and the great plague would in after years become matter of history and wonder. Doubtless this visitation was for extent unexampled, more need that we should work hard to dispute its progress. Ere this men have gone out in sport, and slain their thousands and tens of thousands, but now man had become a creature of price— the life of one of them was more worth than the so-called treasures of kings. Look at his thought-endued countenance, his graceful limbs, his majestic brow, his wondrous mechanism. The type and model of this best work of God is not to be cast aside as a broken vessel. He shall be preserved in his children, and his children's children carry down the name and form of man to latest time. 
above all I must guard those entrusted by nature and fate to my especial care. And surely, if among all my fellow-creatures I were to select those who might stand forth examples of the greatness and goodness of man, I could choose no other than those allied to me by the most sacred ties. Some from among the family of man must survive, and these should be among the survivors. That should be my task, to accomplish it my own life for a small sacrifice. There then in that castle, in Windsor Castle, birthplace of Idris in my babes, should be the haven and retreat for the racked bark of human society. Its forests should be our world, its garden afford us food, within its walls I would establish the shaken throne of health. I was an outcast and a vagabond when Adrian gently threw over me the silver net of love and civilization, and linked me inextricably to human charities and human excellence. I was one who, though an aspirant after good, and an ardent lover of wisdom, was yet unenrolled in any list of worth, when Idris, the princely born, who was herself the personification of all that was divine in woman, she who walked the earth like a poet's dream, as a carved goddess endued with sense, or pictured saint stepping from the canvas, she the most worthy chose me, and gave me herself a priceless gift. During several hours I continued thus to meditate, till hunger and fatigue brought me back to the passing hour, then marked by long shadows cast from the descending sun. I had wandered toward Bracknell, far to the west of Windsor. The feeling of perfect health which I enjoyed assured me that I was free from contagion. I remembered that Idris had been kept in ignorance of my proceedings. She might have heard of my return from London in my visit to Bolter's Lock, which, connected with my continued absence, might tend greatly to alarm her. I returned to Windsor by the long walk, and passing through the town toward the castle, I found it in a state of agitation and disturbance. "'It is too late to be ambitious,' says Sir Thomas Brown. "'We cannot hope to live so long in our names as some have done in their persons. One face of Janus holds no proportion to the other.' Upon this text many fanatics arose who prophesied that the end of time was come. The spirit of superstition had birth from the wreck of our hopes, and antics wild and dangerous were played on the great theatre, while the remaining particle of futurity dwindled into a point in the eyes of the prognosticators. Weak-spirited women died of fear as they listened to their denunciations. Men of robust form and seeming strength fell into idiocy and madness, racked by the dread of coming eternity. A man of this kind was now pouring forth his eloquent despair among the inhabitants of Windsor. The scene of the morning in my visit to the dead, which had been spread abroad, had alarmed the country people so they had become fit instruments to be played upon by a maniac. The poor wretch had lost his young wife and lovely infant by the plague. He was a mechanic, and, rendered unable to attend to the occupation which supplied his necessities, famine was added to his other miseries. He left the chamber which contained his wife and child, wife and child no more but dead earth upon the earth, wild with hunger, watching, and grief. His diseased fancy made him believe himself sent by heaven to preach the end of time to the world. He entered the churches and foretold to the congregations their speedy removal to the vaults below. He appeared like the forgotten spirit of the time in the theatres, and bade the spectators go home and die. 
he had been seized and confined. He had escaped and wandered from London among the neighboring towns, and, with frantic gestures and thrilling words, he unveiled to each their hidden fears, and gave voice to the soundless thought they dared not syllable. He stood under the arcade of the town hall of Windsor, and, from this elevation, harangued a trembling crowd. "'Hear, ye inhabitants of the earth!' he cried. "'Hear thou, all-seeing but most pitiless heaven!' Hear thou, too, O tempest-tossed heart, which breathes out these words, yet faints beneath their meaning. Death is among us. The earth is beautiful and flower-bedecked, but she is our grave. The clouds of heaven weep for us. The pageantry of the stars is but our funeral torchlight. Grey-headed men, Ye hoped for yet a few years in your long-known abode, but the lease is up. You must remove. Children, ye will never reach maturity. Even now the small grave is dug for ye. Mothers, clasp them in your arms. One death embraces ye. Shuddering, he stretched out his hands. His eyes cast up seemed bursting from their sockets while he appeared to follow shapes to us invisible in the yielding air. There they are, he cried. The dead, they rise in their shrouds and pass in silent procession towards the far land of their doom. Their bloodless lips move not. Their shadowy limbs avoid emotion while still they glide onwards. We come he exclaimed, springing forwards. For what should we wait? Haste, my friends, apparel yourselves in the court dress of death. Pestilence will usher you to his absence. Why thus long? They, the good, the wise, and the beloved are gone before. Mothers kiss you last. Husbands, protectors, no more lead on the partners of your death. Come, oh, Come while the dear ones are yet in sight, for soon they will pass away, and we never, never shall join them more. From such ravings as these he would suddenly become collected, and with unexaggerated but terrific words paint the horrors of the time, describe with minute detail the effects of the plague on the human frame, and tell heartbreaking tales of the snapping of dear affinities the gasping horror of despair over the deathbed of the last beloved, so that groans and even shrieks burst from the crowd. One man in particular stood in front, his eyes fixed on the prophet, his mouth open, his limbs rigid, while his face changed to various colors, yellow, blue, and green, through intense fear. The maniac caught his glance and turned his eye on him. One has heard of the gaze of the rattlesnake which allures the trembling victim till he falls within his jaws. The maniac became composed. His person rose higher. Authority beamed from his countenance. He looked on the peasant, who began to tremble while he still gazed. His knees knocked together. His teeth chattered. He at last fell down in convulsions. "'That man has the plague,' said the maniac calmly. A shriek burst from the lips of the poor wretch, and then sudden motionlessness came over him. It was manifest to all that he was dead. Cries of horror filled the place. Every one endeavored to effect his escape. 
In a few minutes the marketplace was cleared, the corpse lay on the ground, and the maniac, subdued and exhausted, sat beside it, leaning his gaunt cheek upon his thin hand. Soon some people, deputed by the magistrates, came to remove the body. The unfortunate being saw a jailer in each. He fled precipitately, while I passed onwards to the castle. Death, cruel and relentless, had entered these beloved walls. An old servant who nursed Idris in infancy, and who lived with us more on the footing of a revered relative than a domestic, had gone a few days before to visit a daughter, married and settled in the neighbourhood of London. On the night of her return she sickened of the plague. From the haughty and unbending nature of the Countess of Windsor, Idris had few tender filial associations with her. This good woman had stood in the place of a mother, and her very deficiencies of education and knowledge, by rendering her humble and defenceless, endeared her to us. She was the especial favourite of the children. I found my poor girl, there is no exaggeration in the expression, wild with grief and dread. She hung over the patient in agony, which was not mitigated when her thoughts wandered toward her babes, for whom she feared infection. My arrival was like the newly discovered lamp of a lighthouse to sailors who are withering some dangerous point. She deposited her appalling doubts in my hands. She relied on my judgment, and was comforted by my participation in her sorrow. Soon our poor nurse expired, and the anguish of suspense was changed to deep regret which, though at first more painful, yet yielded with greater readiness to my consolations. Sleep, the sovereign balm, at length steeped her tearful eyes in forgetfulness. She slept, and quiet prevailed in the castle, whose habitants were hushed to repose. I was awake, and during the long hours of dead night, my busy thoughts worked in my brain like ten thousand mill-wheels, rapid, acute, untamable. All slept, all England slept, and from my window, commanding a wide prospect of the star-illumined country, I saw the land stretched out in placid rest. I was awake, alive, while the brother of death possessed my race. What if the more potent of these paternal deities should obtain dominion over it? The silence of midnight, to speak truly, though apparently a paradox, rung in my ears. The solitude became intolerable. I placed my hand on the beating heart of Idris. I bent my head to catch the sound of her breath, to assure myself that she still existed. For a moment I doubted whether I should not wake her. So effeminate and horror ran through my frame. Great God! Would it one day be thus? One day all extinct, save myself? Should I walk the earth alone? Were these warning voices, whose inarticulate and oracular sense forced belief upon me? Yet I would not call them voices of warning, that announced to us only the inevitable. As the sun, ere it is risen, sometimes paints its image in the atmosphere, so often do the spirits of great events stride on before the events, and in to-day already walks to-morrow. End of chapter 7